season two of MED, Medical Education for the Practicing Clinician. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Whittemore. We are brought to you by the Rural and Underserved Utah Training Experience Program at the Spencer Fox Eccles School of Medicine at the University of Utah. This season, we'll be focusing on leadership in medicine. I am looking forward to speaking with leaders across the spectrum of the medical field, including physicians, nurses, educators, patient advocates, and more. As always, free CME is available to anyone who wants it, and this is supported by the CME office at the School of Medicine. More information can be found on our website and in the episode notes. Welcome back to MED, Medical Education for the Practicing Clinician. I'm your host, Dr. Carrie Whittemore. In this episode on leadership, we are taking a bit of a different turn and we'll be discussing the financial side of healthcare leadership. I was able to interview Charlton Park, who's the Chief Financial Officer and Chief Analytics Officer of the University of Utah Hospitals and Clinics. He oversees the financial planning, budgeting, general accounting, operational and capital financial planning, analytics, and revenue cycle functions of the multi-billion dollar University of Utah Health System. Charlton received his Bachelor of Science degree in Information Systems from the University of Utah and his MBA and Master of Health Sector Management degrees at Arizona State University. I hope you enjoy this episode with financial leadership lessons that can be applied to both small medical practices and large healthcare institutions. So welcome, Charlton. Thanks for chatting with us today. Uh, Good morning, Carrie. Good to be with you this morning. So can you first go over what your role is exactly? I've heard of Chief Financial Officer, but I have no idea what Chief Analytics Officer is. Oh, great question. Uh, Carrie, I'm the Chief uh, Financial Officer for Hospitals and Clinics, which again is the typical roles of a CFO, all the accounting, finance function, budgeting, planning, contracting, payer relations, revenue cycle stuff. Uh Um, But the analytics role is really, uh, I lead our our decision support uh, team, which is uh, analytics professionals um, who really use, uh, harness the power of our um, enterprise data warehouse, all the financial, clinical data there, uh, to drive insights to help uh, data-driven uh, decision-making within uh, the, the uh, healthcare organization. Okay. And how much money do you oversee? Or like, what's, the, I don't know if you can say that, but like, what's, how big yeah. is the budget? Uh, the annual uh, budget uh, for hospitals and clinics is about $2.5 billion. Billion with a B? Billion with a, with a B, yes. Oh my gosh, that's a huge amount of money. I had no idea. Wow. Yeah, we make up a, a large percentage along with the, the School of Medicine of the entire uh, University of Utah. Um, uh, health sciences, including the, the School of Medicine and hospitals and clinics, is well over half of the total revenues of the entire university. Wow. So how do you oversee such a big number as just one person? That sounds really hard. I'm guessing uh, you, I- you delegate a lot. <laughs> I, uh, yeah, exactly. That's it. Start with having a very good team, uh-huh. uh, cross-functional team of uh, different uh, leaders from all those uh, those responsibilities I I mentioned that really help us uh, keep track of all that's going on in the hospitals and clinics. It's a it's a big operation, uh, two point five billion dollars, uh, probably uh, twenty twenty five different sites of uh, service, and then. Um, over 13,000 employees. Uh, yeah. So uh, a big team, a uh, very talented team in the finance space and as well as operations to 
uh, keep the thing uh, going in the right direction. Right. That sounds like a lot. Well, I saw that you have your MBA and master of health sector management. I mean, a lot of people have those sort of degrees. How did you end up in your position coming out? Yeah, really good question. I, um, I, I uh, got to answer this uh, a couple of nights ago at an MHA class in the David Eccles School of Business. My, I have an identical twin brother who um, <laughs> I kind of followed in the, down the pre-med uh, path for a while uh-huh. until I couldn't keep up with the, the chemistry and the, the calculus <laughs> and uh, took a different uh, uh, course over to the business school where I studied uh, information systems for a while and then uh, worked uh, in uh, IT in Houston, Texas for a few years before heading back to, to grad school when he was uh, beginning uh, medical school. Wanted to try and keep up with him somewhat. <laughs> wasn't going to be a doctor, but I thought getting a, another degree would be great. And uh, my father is also a, a physician, OBGYN, and I have uh, uh, in addition to my twin brother, two other uh, siblings that are doctors as oh, well. Wow. So a lot of um, medicine in the family. I just didn't have the stomach for it. Uh, <laughs> but in uh, pursuing uh, my graduate studies, uh, Arizona State had a dual degree program where you could get your MBA and your, your master's of health sector manager, management together. And I thought maybe that's my place in the industry is more in a uh, administrative uh, role, so I, I took it, and it's um, it's worked out well for me as I get to be uh, on the provider side of healthcare, albeit I'm not um, touching patients, but helping to to move the clinical uh, enterprise forward in in a different way. And how long have you been in your role at the U? I've uh, worked here at the University of Utah Hospitals and Clinics now for a little over twelve years. Uh-huh. Um, and I've been in my role as uh, CFO uh, for about uh, five and a half now. Okay. And so obviously that's a leadership role. So I like to ask everyone this for this podcast series is how would you define leadership and especially how it applies in the medical field? Yeah. I think it goes a little bit back to um, uh, the earlier answer, having a great team. I think uh, healthcare is such a complicated place, especially an academic medical center. We've got a lot going on uh, pursuing our clinical, academic, and research missions. As a leader, it's really uh, working with the various leaders across the enterprise and all the, the talented team members uh, to, to make things work. Uh, part of being a leader is not to, to stifle or get in the way of uh, the, the good team member, members that uh, know what they're doing and uh, need really just need my support to move things forward. Mm-hmm. So I think leadership has a lot to do with uh, empowering uh, the team members and supporting the team members to get uh, the things done that they need uh, mm-hmm. to get done, especially in this complex um, uh, environment we have as an academic medical center where there are so many uh, different leaders across the, the organization that need to, to be on the same page and work together to move things forward. I think those relationships and the communication and cooperation uh, across um, different areas of the system are uh, of the utmost importance. And I think uh, a lot of strong leadership is, is needed to, to get that done. And 
uh, something I enjoy to do uh, doing here in my role is uh, reaching across uh, the system, working with the physician leaders in the School of Medicine and working with all of our operational leaders across this uh, big organization. Again, I mentioned 13,000 right. right. employees and more than uh, uh, 450 leaders uh, within the hospitals yeah. and clinics that we really need to get all uh, marching to the beat of the same uh, drummer. That sounds complicated to get everyone on the same page. I'm yes. Challenges that come from that. <laughs> so yes, it's that a tall order, but uh, we've, uh, we've got a great team. It's a great culture here across health sciences that mm -hmm. uh, makes it a little bit easier. Yeah. So that leads into my next question. I'm just wondering like challenges that you have in your role. Uh, money is always a, a <laughs> challenge. There's uh, seems to be always um, uh, more ideas and opportunities than we can ever afford. Yeah. Uh, one of the, the big challenges we have right now, more of a, a current event, but is always a little bit of a challenge is maintaining um, a, an engaged workforce at a time when we we just can't find all the staff we need um, to fill positions. We've got a, a large number of open positions, much uh, larger than we typically have, having trouble filling those, um, those positions and really uh, have never had this uh, challenge where we actually have uh, patients and the demand for services and, and not able to, to fill uh, positions as quickly as uh, we would like. So we're having to be more innovative. Um, we also at the same time have competition within the marketplace to, to, to retain our talent. Uh, right. Nurses and other staff are getting offers to go to the coasts and make a lot of money as right. travelers and, uh, and as well as other competition just within uh, Utah with the other for-profit um, systems or Intermountain. Mm -hmm. And we've got to be uh, remain very competitive uh, and uh, with, with uh, the opportunities that are out there. Mm -hmm. And part of that is money and part of it is um, culture. We really yeah. do feel like we've got a strong, valuable culture here that we need to maintain. And that, that, that's up to our leaders and our managers and team members to maintain that, that culture, which makes this an attractive place uh, mm -hmm. to, to be, as well as be a very competitive with- uh, Other places with the money as well. Yeah. Yeah. I have to say on a bit of a more granular level from you. So I'm a pediatrician otherwise at um, the Redwood Health Center, and we have a lot of MA positions open and it makes it really hard as a provider yeah. on a daily basis to not have the support staff that you need. So I can, yeah. I can see that. I know that's across the institution. Do you think that's mainly COVID fatigue and how hard it's been on people working in healthcare? Like I think that's, I think it's, I think that's part of it. I think we're seeing experiencing higher than normal volumes just because there was some pent up demand and then uh, we're, we're catching up with it a little bit. I think uh, on some of those um, more entry level positions too, we're getting a lot more competition from other industries and, and uh, other players that are entering Utah's market that um, uh, at similar level of pay, different opportunities that might be a little more attractive than being in a healthcare environment that some some have soured on a little bit as far as uh, working with COVID and uh, the, the challenges or risks that um, some might perceive there. Right. I know with uh, positions like environmental services or 
materials management, uh, we're really competing with uh, new entrants like Amazon and others that have come into the market that uh, are, are paying a little bit higher wage and maybe uh, appeal uh, to a, uh, this, the same audience a little bit more so. And we've got to uh, do what we can to promote why being in healthcare uh, is, is a good place to be. Uh, the, right. the mission and values within this industry are different than a lot of the for-profit uh, uh, companies in different industries, uh, but it continues to be a challenge and we're, we're watching it very closely. And how has COVID affected your job and the institution in general as a leader in finance? I'm guessing it's presented some challenges. Oh, absolutely. Um, I spend a lot of time here in this office alone. I, I, I guess I, I consider myself one of the lucky ones. I've been able to come to work every day since the pandemic uh, began, although I'm here alone right. from morning to night quite a bit, um, but uh, I, I get to be close to the action. And so it's been very real uh, to be here at the hospital and walk the halls and be able to see how quiet it was early on and, and, and then getting to experience it begin to, to pick back up has been fantastic and now it's as, as busy as ever right um, while we continue to maintain the normal business as well as address the the surges of of covid patients uh, but the financial challenges have been significant uh, the, as we turned it turned the business off early on uh, we turned the the revenue off uh, yeah. as yeah. we stopped seeing patients especially all the elective procedures the surgical uh, procedures, the, the revenues dried up quite quickly. Um, and at the same time, we made the, uh, the decision as an ex executive team that we were going to maintain our workforce. Mm -hmm. um, so even though we, we, we stopped seeing a lot of our patient and the, the volumes dried up because people weren't coming in, we chose to, to keep all our employees whole, mm -hmm. uh, to, to pay them their full FTE and weather the storm. Uh, and really the strategy there, Carrie, was uh, we, we've got such a competitive uh, uh, market as far as for, for talent uh, yeah. with, here in Utah that we needed to, to be absolutely loyal to our team members right. um, for when the pandemic would subside and things would bounce back. Now, the pandemic's not over by right. any means, but the business shore has come back quickly. Mm -hmm. And because we weathered that, you know, uh, four, five, six, seven months um, lull in volumes and kept our employees engaged, we were able to bounce back very quickly as far as uh, getting right back up to speed, opening up the business again. Had we um, separated from some of our employees, I think we would have lost a lot of uh, credibility, a lot of loyalty. Yeah. And the, the challenges we're having now, finding staff would be exacerbated even further sure. because sure. we'd be starting from a much lower lower point trying to, to pull ourselves up out of that. So I think that strategy has paid off as the business has come back, but we, we lost a lot of revenue early on and uh, piled up a lot of additional costs related to the testing and the PPE, tents and, sure. yeah, yeah, yeah. The, uh, the protective equipment and other supply chain and facilities items that we had to uh, stand up. 
I won't bore you with quoting some of the numbers, but these are big numbers. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, but we did receive uh, and pursue uh, our our share of, um, of funds from the federal government under the CARES Act, which mm. helped to fill in some of the hole. That uh, by all means didn't cover all the revenue losses or the added expenses that we've piled up, but it really has uh, helped. And what's helped even more is uh, that strategy with our workforce, which has allowed us to bounce back so quickly and begin to, to see uh, patients so quickly and uh, really ramp the business uh, back up, which has been really going strong for the last uh, six or seven months now uh, here in uh, calendar 2021. And that's really helped to get our finances back in order. So one thing I found in medical school and in residency is that no one taught me anything about money and medicine. And I find that that's really hard because then you go out into this world. Do you teach medical students at all? Or what do you wish, what do you wish medical students and you know residents knew that we don't know? I'm guessing that's a lot. Yeah, well, I have been a guest lecturer in uh, Dr. Ryan Murphy's uh, class in the med school a couple of times. And, and I do think uh, American healthcare, the financing of it is, is super complicated. Um, third party payers and how that all works. And then our, our government payers, Medicare and Medicaid, it, it's quite complicated. And we can often uh, reach the wrong conclusions about who's, who do we wanna see and who do we not wanna see. And one thing that's been fa fabulous for, for um, Utah in general and the finances of uh, the hospital has been the Medicaid expansion here yeah. in the state, uh, both on the provider side as well as the hospital. These are often patients that we uh, in previous years saw unfunded. Um, uh, so uh, we received no revenue for that are now able to, to seek care um, and be funded by Medicaid. So better health and then revenues to the hospital as well as the provider. And uh, some of those uh, Medicaid patients are, 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 they're very good for the system financially and uh, is a payer that uh, can be attractive um, for our health system. I think the, uh, the thing to understand uh, on the, the, the training side that I'd love for all medical students to, to spend some time learning is about hospital costs in general, um, supplies, pharmaceuticals, labors, and uh, really understanding the role that a provider uh, uh, plays in uh, hospital cost. It really, the providers really direct the care and decisions they make about how often to order labs, how often to order imaging, uh, what types of supplies to use, uh, really make all the difference. So a lot of, especially on the inpatient side, a lot of the revenues are capped. Uh, the hospital will receive a, a global payment that covers, uh, say, an appendectomy or a, right. an inpatient stay. And uh, the, 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 uh, the appropriate choice of pharmaceutical supplies and lab, lab or imaging order will determine whether the hospital is able to cover those costs or not because exactly. uh, gone are the days of just um, charging more and getting paid more right uh, right uh, in, instead uh, our payers are, are capping that expense and uh, putting it on us to to better manage the costs of care can you explain what a capitation model of payment is 
Um, I know uh, one thing that people, so for me, I'll just a little bit of background. So as an outpatient doctor, we're paid in RVUs. Um, maybe you can, I'm guessing most people listening to this know what that is, but it has its challenges, especially at my clinic, because we have a lot of no shows because of our, like our patient mix. And then yeah. you don't get paid for that time that you're there. And then a lot of my patients have translators. It takes longer. Like it's just a more challenging way to get paid in my opinion. So I was always thought that the capitation models would be interesting if that's ever something that payers would go towards. Yeah. Capitation, uh, in a capitated model, the, the, the a pure capitation, model, the, the provider would receive a, a per member per month payment okay. from the health pad or, or whomever. And then uh, the providers uh, holds all the risk to managing the, the health of the population, mm -hmm. uh, which can get really dangerous, really ugly. If you have a few uh, members or cases that go sideways and get into some long inpatient stays or some very high priced pharmaceuticals, you can blow mm -hmm. through that PMPM very, very quickly. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's why having a large population to, to spread that risk is really, really uh, quite important. Mm -hmm. uh, here at the University of Utah, we don't really have any capitated populations. Our health plan does uh, run uh, two um, Medicaid ACO populations that are uh, capitated on the health plan. And uh, so mm -hmm. the health plan owns the, the risk uh, related to those, um, those populations, and then they'll pay us, the hospital system, and the providers for the care that we provide based on RVUs and other uh, billing functions. But then the risk lies with that, that health plan uh, uh, and the, the government only pays them that capitated rate. And then if they're able to manage the care um, uh, within the, the budget that the capitated uh, payment they receive uh, from the state, then they, they make a margin. If not, uh, they hold the risk, uh, but it's much more complicated than that there's a lot of risk adjustment that goes into it too, uh, to help um, iron out some of that risk that they take on by taking a, a Medicaid population. I do think it is uh, an, an interesting uh, way to, to an approach to healthcare that gets us providers thinking of doing the right thing for our patients um, yeah. to manage uh, their health rather than to just respond to um, some medical need. Uh, at the time, yeah, like something that at the time. Instead yeah. of just taking care of the acute need, instead we can spend time with patients, helping them be more healthy so they can avoid uh, healthcare down the road. Right now in a fee-for-service model, we're not paid to keep uh, our patients healthy. We're just right. paid to respond to whatever they've come to see us for. And I think that shift is, uh, is needed, but really quite challenging because um, payers um, and you know, the, even our government payers aren't uh, super innovative uh, as far as embracing uh, paying us to, to, to proactively keep uh, patients heavy, healthy instead we're more reactive to right. acute care medical needs. And that's one of the shifts that really could uh, change things in, in American healthcare. And that's actually challenging from my side as a provider because we would like to focus more on health and less on the acute issue and what's going on in that minute in terms of 
provider satisfaction. You know, we want to keep our patients healthy and you're talking about the right thing. That seems like the right thing to do. So it'd be nice if something could change that way, but I have no power for that. (laughs) Time will tell. And I think we're, we're, you know, we're uh, inching towards something like that, but still a lot would need to change. Uh, A lot of our health plans um, partners are incented to have more of a short-term view of things because uh, members on a health plan may stay there for, you know, three to five years mm-hmm. um, and then switch jobs or whatever and bounce around to different health plans. So there's not really an incentive for a health carrier to, to make major investments in uh, their members if they're not going to be their members for life, right? That makes sense, yeah. So it, it's challenging that way as well. Um, change gears a little bit. So through, I know through your MBA, you probably read a lot of leadership books or just in your uh, life since then. Do you have any books or authors that you feel like have taught you a lot or journal articles? And we can put any of this on our website that goes with the podcast. Do you have like a leadership Bible sort of book that you really like? No, I I can tell you about one. uh, I mean, I think there's a lot of um, great business texts out there. I joke, um, that there's so many business texts out there, they contradict each other. I'm so, sure, I'm so sure. Be, be very careful. Um, yeah. w- one that, this was actually a recommendation from Dr. Good that I've just uh, been working on and about finished with. Um, and a couple of his colleagues from Florida, I believe wrote this. This is Craig E. Rund and Tim A. Flanagan becoming a conflict competent leader. Uh-huh. And I alluded to that a little bit uh, earlier, I think in an academic um, center, I do think um, leaders really have to communicate well. Yeah. And there's a lot of, uh, I, I don't think it, uh, we're unlike any other industry. There's there's conflict that exists here about money. There's always conflict about money. Mm-hmm. Uh, but really being able to, to, to focus on doing what's best for the organization mm-hmm. and avoid those, um, uh, how to, how to, to, to work with those conflicts, to find solutions rather than have it uh, focus too much on, let those conflicts kind of degrade the culture and the environment of the organization. Right. Uh, I, I really like the, the book because it gives a lot of uh, different strategies for how to, to not avoid conflict. Conflict happens and it's good. Right. It's how, right. we, how we go about addressing and working through it to find ultimate solutions that I think um, will define uh, the culture of the organization and the success of the organization, but super applicable um, to to our environment here, probably really any healthcare environment. Uh, But I think because our organization is not a top-down hierarchical organization like you might find in some for-profit healthcare environments, Uh, we really do have a hospital CEO and uh, uh, Dr. Good in his senior vice president position and then chairs of 16 different uh, departments that need to work together. And mm-hmm. all of them uh, have really big roles uh, to fill in making it work, but we've all got to be able to work through the different conflicts in right. order to, to, to make progress and uh, ultimately make the, the system uh, better and we all play a, a heavy role in building the ultimate culture of the overall organization which is uh, essential to hiring and retaining the, the best faculty and staff 
Yeah, and I think part of conflict is it's uncomfortable. So it's hard to sit with discomfort versus, yeah. you know, versus just kind of pushing it away and not talking about things. So I'm sure that's- Yeah, and that's one of the yeah. first things in the book is uh, don't ignore your conflicts. Don't run and hide from them. Right, right. Uh, but let's, let's look at these strategies and how we can approach the conflict to, to work through yeah. it and make things better. One last question I have for you in terms of quality improvement. So I know um, the U is high, really high in the country in terms of our quality of healthcare that's delivered. Just thinking of an example from pediatrics, um, one thing that we do is say kids with bronchiolitis is we're now discharge them home on oxygen versus keeping them in the hospital on oxygen until they're off and then discharging them. And that's like the best care, but it also decreases the revenue of the hospital because the kids aren't staying for those extra days and you're not billing for that. Mm -hmm. At least that's my understanding. How do you go about those conflicting ideas of the best care is not the most ex highest revenue well, for the hospital system? Yeah. So, and there's, there's different situations and it, it all depends, Carrie, because this is some of the education that I think we, we don't do enough of with um, our staff or faculty because uh, it, it all depends. Hospitals in general, they, we charge for everything that go, goes right, on. Right, um, right. But that doesn't mean we get paid for okay. anything incrementally more. Uh -huh. So uh, maybe the payer says this should just be a day. So we're going to yeah, do for a day. Yeah. So yeah. I mentioned uh, most of our payers, not all. And that's why it's so nuanced. Some yeah. payers, uh, because they don't send a lot of volume to us, we do incrementally get paid as charges stack up because they're paying us on what we call a percent of build charges uh, okay. contract, which means the more you charge, the, the, the if you're getting paid 70% of charges, you're going to get paid more the more you build. But most of our um, payers now have moved to uh, a DRG payment. So that DRG is a diagnosis related group. So okay. for that that type of diagnosis, they're going to pay us a flat rate, $8,000. And it's left up to us whether we manage that with uh, two uh, images or 10 different images. If we mm -hmm. take labs every day or we take labs five times a day, uh, right. they're not going to pay us incrementally more, even though the charges would be very different depending on if we do more, if we keep them for 10 days or we only keep them for, for four days. Right. So, and we can't expect our providers to navigate all that. Say, so, oh, right. for these payers, we want to keep them longer. For those <laughs> payers, we're, Certainly we're, doesn't seem like the ethical thing to do either. No, it, it's, it's kind of not, interesting that it's not fee-for-service. I just thought everything was fee-for-service everywhere. Yeah. I had no idea. Well, and, and DRG payments are still referred to as a form of fee-for-service because we get paid for the admission. Mm -hmm. And then we'll get paid more for the next admission. Um, but we won't, there's not the disincentive to, uh, there's not the incentive to just keep them in-house and keep right. you know, sending them through the MRI and you get, get more revenue. So really what the focus is, on is, is what, what's best for the patient. And that's exactly what we should be doing. Mm -hmm. if, we can, if we can reduce um, hospital costs and it is what's best for the patient, most patients want to get discharged and get out of here. Sure, for sure. That's what we should be focusing our efforts on. Uh, but on the flip side, we don't want to ration care and not do 
some lab work when it would be helpful to do right. the lab work, right. knowing the payer's not going to pay us incrementally more for doing these extra labs. But if the clinicians say, yeah, we need that workup in order to make decisions, then we absolutely need to do it. Um, so, it, and I'm a firm believer, you do what's right by the patient mm -hmm. and the finances will work out. Right. Um, but there's a lot of education and confusion about what we get paid for, what we don't get paid for. And I think more education is necessary, but I also feel um, strongly that if we concentrate on doing what's best for the patient, um, that's, the, the, that's the, essential, the essential thing to do. And my last question is, and this might be a tad controversial, but did you, I'm guessing you did, saw the New York Times article where they did the big spread on how much you get charged depending on where you live in the country? What did you think about that? I think they might have even mentioned Intermountain. If yeah, I they, they did. I, I see that stuff, Carrie, and I, I get a little um, perturbed by it because okay. they cherry picked. Gotcha. They really have cherry picked. Because if you, you know, if you boil up and that, that whole article is about price transparency and right, the requirement right. for hospitals to post their payer negotiated rates. So posting what Cigna, Altius, Select mm -hmm. Health. Which is uh, different depending on regions, the region. for an MRI. Right. And there's going to be variation with a very specific thing. Mm -hmm. um, but, but then there's going to be variation on different services. So if you boil it all down, uh, the, all the commercial payers are paying us basically if you took their what we charge for something and what they actually pay us, they're all going to be in the same ballpark as far as a percent of billed charges okay. in the aggregate. When you load all the inpatient care, outpatient care, the imaging labs, whatever, they're all going to be around that. And the percentage will be different from hospital to hospital. But as I look at all of our commercial payers, they're all in the same ballpark. But yes, if you dig into it, you could find uh, for a certain um, brain, brain MRI, one payer is going to pay us twice or three times as much as another payer. But then that same other payer is going to be paying us more for some other service uh, than that other payer we've compared it against. So I think they've They've really cherry picked a few gotcha, aha examples. Uh -huh. But mm -hmm. I think if you aggregated it all up, it, it, it all comes true. out in the wash. And when we negotiate with a payer, that's what they're looking at. They're not looking at uh, what it costs when they send somebody to our hospital for an MRI. They're looking at what their whole patient population for all the services that they're gonna be directing to our care is gonna cost them. Mm -hmm. And if that's the right number uh, for the, the population they're manage, managing, less so about all of the 250,000 different services we provide and whether they have the perfect pricing on each one of those, mm -hmm. it's, it's kind of the aggregate um, uh, approach that they're looking at. And that, that uh, article kind of exposes some of the variation that exists. Right. But if you step back, to see the forest for the trees, you, right. you see there's a lot more logic to it than that article suggests. One thing I did like about the article though is just saying that some places do not publish 
do not yeah. have price, trans price, price transparency. I'm guessing that we do, right? I would be shocked if we don't publish. So we have, uh, there's a couple different requirements in the, the, the rule that, that, that are part of the report that make up the requirement. And we have a patient facing, uh, a patient facing portal Okay. That allows for our 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 patients to get accurate uh, price okay. estimates yeah. for hundreds and hundreds of different uh, uh, common services. Right, and we've been a leader there. We've had our patient estimator out for five or six years, and it gets okay. used quite a bit. It's driven by Epic now. Originally, mm -hmm. it was driven by our data warehouse, but. Um, uh, now it's uh, driven by Epic, but uh, and can be used by those who have a MyChart account or those who don't have a MyChart account. The other requirement um, we're still working on, which is uh, pulling together all of our payer negotiated rates and posting those. Mm -hmm. And there's a few hospitals in Utah that have done that, and we're still pulling together all the data across our you know, hundreds of different payers um, and all the procedures that are required in order to be able to uh, move forward with that potentially at a later date. Mm -hmm. Well, do you think there's anything lastly that providers should know about healthcare finance? I know there's a ton, but any like last message that you wish we knew? I guess maybe the, what you said already, that it's more complicated than we think. Yeah, it, it's super complicated. And I, I'd encourage um, those who want um, to, to ask questions and uh, learn more to, to reach out. I, I, think, I, I think there's a lot to learn and a lot to be confused by in, in American healthcare and in our environment. But I, I do, I would just say what I said earlier, um, our, our uh, faculty here at the University of Utah play such a big role in hospital finances. Mm -hmm. um, our, our faculty control the, the utilization of resources and our, our, our partners in the hospital finances. I think sometimes it feels a little separate between the departments and the hospital, but it is one ecosystem that right. the more we communicate, the more we work together um, on you know, standardization, education, and, and some of these uh, uh, efforts to control costs and do what's best for our patients, the, the better off we'll be. But I really uh, appreciate the, the opportunity to talk with you, Carrie, and the, it is a, a topic that I can I talk for hours and hours. I'm sure, I'm sure. Well, thanks so much for sharing your time. I really appreciate it. And I think we went over some interesting information that people will find helpful. Perfect. Thanks okay. so much. Thanks. Have a good day. Bye. Thank you to Charlton Park for enlightening us to issues regarding financial leadership in medicine, many of which I certainly didn't know about. See you all next time. Bye. And listeners, please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and please visit our website for articles and more information about the topics discussed, as well as information on obtaining free CME credit from listening to the podcast. We will see you in two weeks for another episode of MED, Medical Education for the Practicing Clinician. Thanks.